listeners, before we start today's episode, I have an ask. We want to know what you think of Love, Lead, Listen. Take a few minutes to take our listener survey at alphagammadelta.org forward slash podcast. The survey will be open until May 1st, 2021. So don't miss your chance to let us know what you think. And while you're at it, take a second to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And we love hearing what you think of Love, Lead, Listen. Welcome to Love, Lead, Listen, a podcast from Alpha Gamma Delta and generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. I'm your host, Emily Bice. Join us as we discuss topics that affect women of today and examine the ways that we can be women with purpose. Hi, listeners. This episode may be triggering for some viewers. Sexual violence, assault, and abuse will be covered. If you feel triggered during this episode, please do not hesitate to stop listening and contact Polaris Counseling and Consulting and or AlphaGam headquarters for further assistance. Today's guest is the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault and Human Trafficking. This organization is a nationally recognized and trusted leader in shifting culture, supporting survivors, and strengthening communities to prevent and end sexual assault and human trafficking. Started in 2015, the coalition has quickly grown. Today's guest is Haley Rigger, who is the Director of Sexual Assault and Service Expansion at ICESA HT. As Director, Haley provides training, resources, and technical assistance to sexual assault service providers across the state to ensure comprehensive trauma-informed, culturally relevant services are accessible to all Hoosiers. Haley serves on the Indiana Disability Justice Task Force and the Indiana Protection for Abused and Trafficked Humans Task Force and the National Human Trafficking and Disabilities Working Group. She is a graduate of Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs and is currently pursuing her Master's of Social Work at the Indiana University School of Social Work. Haley, welcome. Thank you so much, Emily. Glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. So to start off, can you tell me a little bit about ICESA HT and the work you do? Yeah, so ICESA HT is the CDC-designated sexual assault coalition for the state of Indiana. All of the states in the country have um, a a sexual assault coalition. Uh, So our work is to prevent and end sexual violence. Um, We work with communities to respond to sexual violence, to support survivors, um, you know, address kind of the aftermath. How can we better improve our responses and improve, you know, criminal justice, uh, as well as just our community response. So, yeah, we're here to, to support survivors and um, work to end violence in the first place. That's so exciting to hear. And I'm glad that there are resources like that available to members in our community. So you said that this is a CDC appointed task force or group. So in every state has their own version of this. Yeah, that's right. Um, So every state has their own version um, that's kind of coordinating sexual assault response across the state, supporting rape crisis centers, working with sexual assault response teams, um, and just ensuring that there are services accessible across their own states. That's so interesting. So can you tell me a little bit about how you started working with IKESA HT? Yeah, so um, I've been with ICESA HT for about two years now, a little over two years. Um, but my background is in crisis intervention. I've served as a case manager working with um, individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, I've worked with adults with developmental and cognitive disabilities. So I've done a lot of direct service um, and doing all of that work. You know, I, I started to see how pervasive sexual violence and just violence in general is in our communities and kind of the long term impact that that has on folks. So I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit of what exactly is sexual assault? Like, are there different types? 
what is it? Yeah, so simply stated, sexual assault is um, sexual contact or behavior that occurs without explicit consent of the victim. Um, so it's kind of a wide range of things that that constitute sexual assault. So, you know, groping, rape or attempted rape, that kind of physical aspect. Um, but we also use the term sexual violence as an umbrella term. So that is inclusive of the physical aspect, but also, you know, things like sexual harassment, sexual exploitation voyeurism, human trafficking, and then things that are um, acts against an individual's bodily autonomy or their sexual integrity. So things like forced abortion, the controlling of another person's access or use of uh, contraception, even things like genital mutilation or virginity inspections. Wow. So it's more than just being groped in a club or even experiencing rape. It's a whole host of issues. Yeah, it's a very pervasive, very large form of violence. So. Can you tell me about what percentage of women are impacted by sexual assault or sexual violence every year? Yeah. So studies indicate that approximately one in four women have experienced some form of sexual violence in their lifetime. And about one in six women have experienced attempted or completed rape. Those are pretty staggering numbers in my mind. Yeah. So unfortunately, that means if you're talking to a group of women, at least one of them has probably experienced sexual violence, if not multiple of them. And Alpha Gamma Delta is a women's organization. So I'm sure that there are, I'm thinking through just like the numbers of we have and how many women that are in our organization and our sisters that might have experienced this as well. Yeah, very pervasive. And we do think about sexual violence as being a gender-based form of violence, but men also can be victims of sexual violence as well. Um, about one in 33 men have experienced attempted or completed rape. Yes, I think that's a really important to note. It's not just a women's issue. It's an everyone issue there. Exactly. And even thinking about it from the perspective of gender-based violence, you know, sexism also impacts men, right? It impacts the way that men can interact with women. It impacts the way that men can show affection and friendship to one another as well. Yeah, it's while it does impact women, men also are impacted by it. And I think through the example of like men typically aren't able to show their emotions or not, they're not able to be vulnerable because of societal expectations through sexism. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's definitely hard for men to come forward about their experience of sexual violence. Um, it's hard for men to really show any kind of vulnerabilities at all in our society, right? So um, part of our work too, um, one of my colleagues is the director of men's engagement and he works at, at talking with men first about just like healthy masculinity and what that might look like, um, how men can be bystanders and can intervene and prevent violence in their own communities, um, but then also about talking about men's experience of violence as well. Yeah. I'm curious, do you have any statistics on non-binary or transgender uh, rates of sexual violence? Yeah, so nearly half of transgender individuals will experience sexual violence in their lifetimes. Um, I think it's right around 47% uh, will experience sexual assault. Wow, that's that's a huge number. It is. It's horrific and pervasive. Um, yeah, for, for folks in the LGBTQIA community, sexual violence is a huge, huge problem. Um, lesbian and gay women experience rates of sexual violence at about 44%, and bisexual women experience a rate of about 61%. And that's significantly higher than for people that identify as heterosexual. Right, right. Yeah, so there's also this this horrific concept called corrective rape, in which um, people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, experience sexual violence as a way to like 
turn them straight. Perpetrators think that they can do that. It's it's really a hate crime, honestly. Yeah, and that that to me sounds horrific. What impacts do you see in the LGBTQIA community from sexual violence? So all survivors are going to experience a lot of shame and guilt and doubt and um, anger. Just like all of those negative emotions are going to come up in the immediate aftermath of violence. But, you know, it also impacts how we can interact with people in our communities, how we reach out to folks. Um, If we feel specifically that we've been assaulted or experienced violence because of who we are, it's going to be much harder to reach out to folks for help um, and to really talk about our identity if we feel that the people around us hate us, right? Yeah, that would make it, if you don't have your community there to help support you, that I know that's a big part of recovery is having a community and having a support group. But if you don't feel like you can have that, that would make that recovery very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm curious if different demographics, and I'm thinking here of the Black, Hispanic, Latinx, those communities, do they experience sexual assault at different rates as well? Yeah. So um, approximately 80% of rapes that are reported are reported by white women, uh, but actually women of color are much more likely to be assaulted. So um, Native and Indigenous women experience the highest rate of the races um, of sexual violence at about 34 to 56%, depending on the, the research study that you read. For biracial or multiracial women, the rate is around 24%. Um, and for Black women, the rate is between about 18 and 34%. We are looking at these rates. Why does sexual violence in marginalized communities, why is it higher there? So I think the important thing to note about that is that the root of sexual violence and really the root of violence is power and control, right? So the further a person is from that locus of power and control in our society, the more likely they are to be marginalized, the more likely they are to experience violence. That is not the individual's fault. That is the way that our society has been kind of established. So, um, you know, folks with disabilities also experience incredibly high rates of sexual violence. People with disabilities experience a rate seven times higher than those without disabilities. Um, And specifically, women with disabilities will experience some form of sexual violence in their life, about 83% of them will experience that sexual violence. 83% of women with disabilities. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's horrific. So thinking about like the root of violence being power and control, you also have to think about historically who has been protected by policies and who has been seen as less than human by our policies. Um, so policies that remove an individual civil rights, an individual who they can or cannot marry, um, determine how much of a person is, right? Thinking about the three-fifths compromise um, and forced removal of Indigenous people from their ancestral lands. Those policies kind of serve to dehumanize certain groups of people. Uh, And that's what sexual violence does. It it dehumanizes an individual. Um, It's used to degrade and humiliate an individual um, so that the perpetrator feels a little more in control of their their surroundings and situation. I've heard before that is a power thing, but I haven't heard that analogy of looking at it from the center of power and who's farther away. And looking at that in that way is really making me think of all the different communities out there and different identities that aren't that historically and systemically haven't been given power. So they are more at risk for to experience sexual violence. Yeah. So, I mean, thinking even just like maybe this is abstract, but thinking back to like Jim Crow laws and slavery, that was all state sanctioned violence. And really, 
that wasn't that long ago in terms of our history, right? And, and the forced removal of indigenous people from their lands was not that long ago. So these pervasive attitudes in our, in our society have not really gone away. They just look different now. So instead of being very openly racist or very openly ableist or very openly transphobic, people make sexist or racist jokes. They make jokes at the expense of disabled folks, of transgender folks. And when we normalize that rhetoric, we normalize those jokes, um, we start to become kind of desensitized to that violence. And so that escalation, it's very easy to see how that can kind of escalate. And we just accept that violence is part of life. And that's an interesting point you made about when you joke about it, that makes you desensitize. And it makes me think of the, you know, you call someone out or you call someone in when they say something that's offensive and they say it's just a joke, but it's not just a joke that contributes to the whole societal experience around sexual violence. Yeah, exactly. It it contributes to the idea that some people are less human than others or some people are less important than others. And just even the concept of joking about that to me is now that, you know, thinking it there, it's like, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance. Like, why would you joke about something that is incredibly harmful to a person? Exactly. And, you know, I think about it too. I'm in my thirties now growing up, those jokes were really common. Like I go back and watch TV of TV that was popular in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, and I'm sure lots of folks have now seen framing Britney Spears and how everybody laughed at Britney Spears, how she is deemed crazy or unstable or just uh, too sexy. You know, we see these media depictions of folks and and we just we kind of internalize those ideas. Exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about what are the long term impacts of sexual violence on an individual? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath, survivors feel a lot of shame, guilt, fear, anger. They might feel isolated. And so long term, um, these psychological feelings and reactions kind of impact a person's health. Um, so some survivors may develop, um, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression or anxiety, um, survivors of complex trauma, you know, survivors that have experienced human trafficking, sex, human sex trafficking may experience um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, maybe dissociative identity disorder, um, and even eating disorders. But then also, you know, there's like the physical elements that, that come from an individual carrying a lot of trauma and stress. And maybe from the experience of sexual violence, there are concerns about pregnancy or a sexually transmitted infection, such as HIV. So, yeah, so those are kind of like the physical and emotional um, long-term impacts. But there's also maybe significant economic fallout for that individual um, because they now have these health or emotional impacts they might also be unable to focus at work. They may be missing some work. And so that can result in job loss, diminished wages, or a lot of time off. I would imagine that while that impacts the individual, that also has impacts on the community as well, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, even just thinking about the economic aspect, those diminished wages, that loss of work, that definitely contributes to the community's experience. You know, there's significant financial costs to being a victim of a crime. So there's, um, you know, medical costs, there's crisis and mental health services fees, um, there's court fees and law enforcement fees. Um, so all of that impacts the community as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then Nat, you brought up the cons the concept of court and legal fees and all of that. That's not, that's a process that is sometimes available, but isn't always isn't always effective for survivors of sexual violence. Is that right? 
Yeah, there are fairly low rates of successful prosecution of sexual assault cases. Um, it can be difficult for prosecutors to prove in court, um, especially if it was just like a one-on-one -on -one situation. There are no you know, witnesses outside of the survivor. Um, there's a lot of education that has to be done with our communities and especially around jury education um, so that folks understand what sexual violence is, understand what sexual assault is, understand what our laws are, and also have an idea of what con consent is as well. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about consent? I know we're talking about situations where consent isn't given, but just so we have a baseline definition here, can you tell our listeners what consent is? Yeah. So consent should be freely given, should be enthusiastic. Um, it should never be coerced. So consent is, yes, I want to engage in this activity with you, not, okay, I guess I'll consent to this activity with you, or, okay, I guess I won't fight you. That's not consent, right? To just To just be there and accept what's happening to you that's still feeling sexual violence. That's not engaging in a consensual fun activity for both partners. Well, for someone that's experienced sexual violence, what resources would, would you recommend? So there are a ton of options for survivors following their experience of sexual violence. Kind of in the immediate aftermath, survivors can access a medical forensic exam regardless of whether or not they report to law enforcement as well. So if they just want to go in, get checked out, make sure everything's okay, maybe get screened for an STI or pregnancy, um, they're not required to report to law enforcement. However, that is an option for survivors that do want to pursue uh, a criminal justice system response. Um, survivors can also receive support from a rape crisis center. They can access counseling, um, attend support groups. You know, rape crisis centers are available 24-7, 365. So they're also just there for emotional support at any point following victimization. So if it's been 15 years after your experience of sexual violence and you're just really struggling one day and need some need some support, you can call a rape crisis center. I think and get that's that a support. great point that you make that even if it's 15 years down the road, you can still get support and you can still get help. Yeah, um, it's interesting following, you know, the Me Too movement has really exploded over the last few years and following these high profile cases like um, Bill Cosby, Larry Nasser the Brett Kavanaugh trial, um, a lot of rape crisis centers reported seeing increased calls on their crisis lines from folks that hadn't experienced sexual violence in many, many years who felt like, I'm fine, I'm healed, that was 20 years ago, I'm doing great now. But then all of this media coverage kind of was triggering for them. So rape crisis centers are still available to provide that emotional support and, and uh, be there for survivors. So you talked about the financial impact of sexual violence in communities. Are there other impacts as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sexual violence affects a community's feeling of safety and belonging, right? So like if you think about your neighborhood and if there's a, an experience of violence in your neighborhood, do you still feel safe in your neighborhood after that's just happened? Um, do you feel comfortable talking with your neighbors? Do you feel comfortable with random people that are walking down the street that maybe you don't know? Maybe you're suddenly on high alert. Um, so there's you know, it can kind of silo communities and, and kind of disrupt um, the way that communities connect. Communities might be really fearful, but they might be angry too. Um, or we might also see a lot of disbelief. And so instead of being angry or hurt by the situation, the community may then just not believe the survivor. And so again, that just kind of affects a community's ability to come together and, um, and really be cohesive and supportive. Yeah. And 
that seems like it's important for a survivor's recovery or survivor's journey is to have a supportive community. And if sexual violence makes that unavailable in a community, I would assume that the recovery or the process of going on from that would be a lot more difficult. Yeah, exactly. Um, a, A colleague of mine often says, you know, deepest hurt and healing happen in relationship. So I could be hurt most deeply by somebody that I know, but that also means that I can be, I can find healing and recovery in community with people I know, Um, finding ways to access community, finding ways to just even, you know, get outside yourself, even if it's just like joining a dodgeball league, Uh, folks can find so much community and so much healing and and activities like that. Absolutely. Well, and it makes me think of you mentioned the disbelief factor as well. So that makes me curious in terms of the disbelief that sometimes survivors experience. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, victim blaming and disbelief are really common in our society. Um, you know, we see a lot of media depictions about what a survivor should look like, how a survivor should behave. And when a survivor isn't behaving exactly like they did in law and order, um, then our community thinks, well, clearly you're not a survivor because you're not acting like that girl I saw on SVU last night. Um, so that that's definitely very pervasive and hard for survivors then to access support, access healing, um, and get services. Yes. You mentioned media in there. I'm curious if media depictions of sexual violence has an impact on our communities as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's this concept of the perfect victim that a victim will always be, will remember everything as it happened very clearly in a linear fashion, um, that a survivor will be very easy to, um, to talk with, that they'll be really, you know, they'll, they'll work well with law enforcement, that they're interested in, in pursuing a criminal justice response. Um, and that's not always the case. Uh, the way that our brains process trauma and victimization, we might just kind of have fragments of memory, and it might take a long time for us to kind of put all of that back. You know, we're in that fight or flight mode um, during an experience of trauma. And so our brain isn't necessarily thinking about, okay, we've got to store all of this away for later so that I can chronologically explain what happened to someone else. We're just thinking how we can survive. Um, So in the aftermath, it might be difficult for us to provide a description of the experience in a linear fashion and chronological fashion. And so that because in in law and order, because in the media, we've seen the survivor say, well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Um, The community might say, well, because you don't remember exactly then it probably didn't happen. Um, and because nobody else was there, then we can't prove that it happened. So there's there's this huge culture of victim blaming and victim disbelief. Well, we talked a bit about uh, resources for those that have experienced sexual violence. For our listeners that want to support someone that's going through this, what's your advice to them? So first and foremost, make it very clear that you believe them. We just talked about that disbelief and victim blaming and shaming. Um, So it's really, really important that you make it clear that you believe them and that you understand that what happened to them is not their fault. Let them know that you're there for them and that all of their feelings are valid. They may be angry. They may be scared. They may be confused. All of those are valid feelings and make it clear that you are a safe space for them to express those feelings. But then be prepared to actually hear how a survivor is feeling um, if you're inviting them to share. When a survivor does decide to share information like that with you, that is really sacred. That means that they treasure you, that they feel safe with you. So make sure that you're keeping that confidential um, and that you're empowering that survivor to decide for them what the next step is. So maybe you know what resources are available 
and you can let them know what resources are available, but you make sure that they still are in the driver's seat and that they're making decisions for themselves. They've just had control taken away from them. So it's very important that they take back control over their own life. Don't make any promises um, or any guarantee that the that you can't keep. So we can't guarantee that an offender will be held accountable in the criminal justice system. So don't make that promise, but also don't make any threats of violence to the offender. Obviously, this has been like a very traumatic experience of violence. The survivor is already overwhelmed by that experience. They don't also need to worry about whether or not you're going to be in trouble, if you're going to go to jail, if you're going to be arrested, or if you could be harmed as well. Lastly, be really patient. Um, you know, healing takes, it's a journey. It takes some time, um, but you should also take care of yourself. So just know that rape crisis centers are also available to serve sur secondary survivors is what we call them, friends and loved ones of an individual who has experienced sexual violence. It's traumatic for you as well. So make sure you take care of yourself and reach out for help if you need it. Well, Haley, we're at the point in our episode where I like to ask all of our guests this one question, and it is, what is your purpose? My personal purpose, I feel, is to contribute to safer, more inclusive and accessible communities, um, you know, to really end violence in our communities. It's important that everyone feels included. Everyone has access to what they need and everyone's needs are met. So my purpose is, is to make sure that that happens. I love that so much. Well, Haley, thank you so much for being here today. I've learned a lot. Um, and again, listeners, if anything during this episode was triggering for you, feel free to contact Polaris Counseling and Consulting or Alpha Gamma Delta International Headquarters for any assistance. We'll also have resources that Haley talked about today on our website. You can find that at alphagammadelta.org slash podcast. Those will be available for you to go and reference and hopefully use if you feel the need or if you want to know more. Haley, thank you again for being here. I very much appreciate you taking the time to help educate me and our listeners. Thank you so much. Love, Lead, Listen is recorded and produced at Alpha Gamma Delta International Headquarters and is generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. Episodes are released every two weeks, so make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. If you like this show, make sure to rate us five stars on iTunes and don't forget to share it with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode or any other feedback, send us an email at podcast at alphagammadelta.org. I'm your host, Emily Weiss, and that's all for today. See you next time.